This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Endo 101 a mini-series that seeks to inform and educate on the enigma that is endometriosis. My purpose on this mini-series is to talk about all the aspects of endometriosis, right from proper definition to treatment methods and even to myths that are pandered about the disease. I am so privileged to be joined today by Mr. Thomas Bainton, the Endometriosis Fellow and a Senior Registrar in Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, UK. Today, we are talking about all the colours, the stages and the sites where endometriosis can be found. If you have any questions you are keen to get answers to, send an email to info at notdefinedbyendo.com with your questions or DM me on Instagram at notdefinedbyendo or tom at ccmig.london. If we have enough questions, we just might do a bonus episode where we answer them all. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Tenny. Absolute pleasure to be back again. Yeah. So let's jump right into it. Last episode, we discussed the theories of endometriosis, the definition of the disease and why it is such a complicated disease. And we even discussed the common and even less common symptoms. So are we ready for episode two? I think so. I think so. I mean, one we would learn from last time is we could talk about this all day. And yeah. I gather in the chat with you before that we had about twice as much material as we were expecting to edit down. So uh, we'll, we'll try and be more succinct, shall we, this time, but we'll yeah. see how we get on. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, <laughs> so I've got this question that I have been thinking about since we finished episode one, and I really wanted to talk about it. You mentioned that under a microscope, there are differences in the structure of endometriomas, peritoneal endometriosis, and deep infiltrating endometriosis. You said that it could actually be considered that these are all different diseases in their own right. So can we talk about what each of these forms of endometriosis are and why they could very well be seen as different? Yeah, I think absolutely right. I think the key differences really are in the the theories about how they got there to start with. Um, One thing to say, you know, right off the bat is they're all endometriosis to all intents and purposes. They have similar characteristics in the the, the pathological finding of endometrial glands and stroma, which is those cell types that live in the lining of the womb normally, but outside the womb. So they've all got lots of sort of consistent findings. But you're absolutely right. And I think we talked about it a little bit last time, didn't we? They, they do have fundamentally different characteristics. They present in different ways. They seem to happen to different people. And they look quite different under the microscope. And there may well be very different theories about how they each started. We don't know for sure. I think probably the, the most different characteristically is the deep infiltrating disease. And there's more and more evidence now to say that you know, that's, that's probably got a different um, origin story, what we call the pathogenesis. Um, the cell types look quite different under the microscope and certainly the areas around the the actual endometriotic cells look quite different too. 
the deep infiltrating disease, we you know, classically say a, a deposit more than five millimeter depth beyond the peritoneum, retroperitoneally. And that's in the rectovaginal septum between the vagina and the, uh, and the back passage, the rectum, or on the uterosacral ligaments, which are the ligaments that attach sort of the bottom of the uterus right onto the cervix to your sacrum, which is the bone at the bottom of your spine, and in the pelvic sidewall. And this area is often underneath an ovary, um, and it can go down towards the ureter, which is the tube from the kidney to the bladder. So those are the sorts of areas that people might understand from reading their surgical reports and, and also talking to surgeons about what are the risks of removing it, because a lot of the risks of surgery associated with damage to areas around where we're operating. When we look at a nodule, and you might find a nodule that's three, four, five, six centimeters behind the uterus um, or on the uterosacral ligaments or similar, not all of it's made up of that endometriotic tissue. You see that you've got the endometrial glands and stroma, but surrounding it, you've got smooth muscle cells, you've got fibrotic cells and, and lots and lots of scar tissue and other in, inflammatory areas and new blood vessels forming, which we simply don't see in the peritoneal or ovarian disease. Um, which leads us to think, you know, is this peritoneal disease that started off in that position and over time it's changed, it's become something else, or is it actually something else fundamentally to start with? And I think it probably is more on the side of being something else fundamentally to start with. We also know that when we find someone with peritoneal endometriosis, or we find the presence of peritoneal endometriosis, which often exists together with the other types, um, if we did a laparoscopy and looked, it doesn't tend to be progressive. So we see the peritoneal endometriosis on day one. We then look again a year later, two years later, 10 years later, it's still peritoneal endometriosis. Right. And it's also true to say that if we see someone, when we first diagnose deep infiltrating endometriosis on day one, we look again, year one, year two, year 10, it doesn't tend to actually have changed a huge amount since the first diagnosis. So it seems that endometriosis, it is, it looks like how we found it, and doesn't necessarily change a huge amount. If they were all one type of condition or, or exactly the same cell type and exactly the same pathological process going on, then we would probably find more and more cases where the peritoneal endometriosis actually became something much more significant over time. Ovarian endometriosis we know does change and those cysts grow and we can remove them and then we can watch them recur and sadly they do have a recurrence rate you know, we look at about 20% at six months, which is you know, really high. Um, and we see them grow and develop over time. It's probably to do with some of the endometriotic area, some of the, 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 the cell types that make up the cyst just staying around behind after excision. Um, and then the, the ovary refilling with that chocolate fluid and, and, and it growing over time. Um, so absolutely, I think that they are, that we, we can look at them as being fundamentally different things in that different women suffer with one more than the other some might have deep infiltrating endometriosis they often have it from day one they often have it with ovarian endometriosis and peritoneal endometriosis but someone who we find peritoneal endometriosis might not necessarily develop one or the other and we, we sometimes see ovarian endometriosis entirely on its own Again, there's a difference within each flavor. You know, we see the ovarian endometriosis, the endometriomas. If it's an isolated ovarian cyst that's in an ovary that's otherwise nice and free and mobile in the pelvis and not stuck down to any of the structures around it, there's no adhesions, mm. then actually there's not that great a correlation with having the deep infiltrating disease. 
But if we see the ovarian endometriomas and they're stuck down, they're stuck together, they're pulled behind the womb, people might um, know from ultrasound reports and MRI reports, we often talk about kissing ovaries, which uh, is is a far nicer way of putting a really quite tricky condition. Mm -hmm. But if we see that the ovaries are kissing together behind the womb, stuck together, then the chance of having a deep infiltrating endometriosis with it is far higher. So there's definitely a correlation and one can relate to the other. But I think thinking about them as different cell types is useful. Okay, interesting. So could any of these types of endometriosis predispose women to any types of cancer? Yeah, and this has been looked at um, quite extensively. And it's important to say if there is a relationship between endometriosis and an increased risk of cancer, then it's small. Um, we don't view it as being a, a massive risk, but you know, there are some things that are far more higher risk for getting cancer, namely family history of breast or ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer being a significant one. Certainly BMI, you know, being overweight vastly increases your risk of getting endometrial cancer. So, you know, those risks are actually substantially higher than any risks we might observe in endometriosis. But there have been some studies that show that women are sadly at a slightly higher risk. Um, the ovarian endometriosis particularly, there's lots of different types of ovarian cancer that can develop. People might have read about um, ovarian cancer being a very difficult condition to diagnose in the early stages. And it it can be quite scary because it often presents fairly late in its course. Um, There's a, a view in the oncological world, in gynecology, actually early ovarian cancer has no symptoms whatsoever. So it's difficult to see and pick up. Endometriosis Oh, sorry, ovarian cancer has been observed in patients with endometriosis. There is a type of endometrial of ovarian cancer, I beg your pardon, called clear cell, um, which is one that particularly endometrial um, ovarian cysts can become. Um, it can also become the endometrioid type. So it's the type of cancer we see in the lining of the womb that can happen in endometriosis elsewhere. Um, and there are indeed case reports of women who've had treatment for endometriosis, including a hysterectomy. You would think you've had your hysterectomy, the chance of getting womb cancer in later life is, is gone down significantly, which it has, but very, very rarely. And I think, you know, we are talking about hen's teeth here. Endometriosis that's outside the womb could, over a lifetime or decades, potentially become malignant, become cancerous thereafter. Um, so it's always something to be aware of and your doctors to be aware of in, in future life. Yes, you had a hysterectomy for endometriosis in your 30s or 40s, but actually if you were shown to have significant size endometriosis deposits elsewhere, that could be a risk. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, I want to emphasize that studies have found different things. Some studies have found a slightly increased risk of ovarian cancer. Some studies have found no increased risk at all. So we don't classically think about it as being something that changes the risk substantially. And I, um, you know, the, the, the time at which endometriosis affects women, usually during younger reproductive years, the risk of getting cancer at that stage is similarly incredibly low. Okay. One thing I think that is important to say is that a lot of women, when they're first diagnosed with endometriosis, there might be a bit of a question mark over it. Because when we're looking for signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer, what do we see? We see bloating, we see pelvic pains, we see change in bowel habit. All of those might sound quite familiar to people who suffer with endometriosis. And then you might have some investigations to your GP and they'd probably organize a pelvic ultrasound and a blood test called a CA125 as the first line. Um, pelvic ultrasounds and endometriosis might well find ovarian cysts. They might find what we call complex ovarian cysts that look like there are lots of locules within them or they're stuck to structures around them or they're on both sides or there's some free fluid in the area. Um, 
a CA125 blood test, which is a blood test that's done to try and tell us whether we should be worried about an ovarian cyst or not in context of cancer. Most significantly, it's important in the postmenopausal age group. Um, so actually, we're dealing with a very different group of people to women who suffer with endometriosis. Um, but it is a test that it's right to say is raised in women with ovarian cancer. But there's also 101 other causes for it to be raised. So although it's quite a sensitive test for ovarian cancer, so if you have ovarian cancer, it's very likely the CA125 will be raised. It's not a particularly specific test for it. Okay. So if you've got a raised CA125, there are 101 different things that could be going on, one of which is cancer of the ovary, or actually probably if you're looking at the statistics, far less than one of which is, is cancer of the ovary in a premenopausal woman. Um, so I think it's useful that people know that if they have got an ovarian cyst and a, a, a raised CA125, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's things like cancer. But in the modern age and in medicine, we often talk about things in that context and we want to rule that out as a first port of call. We sometimes see patients in our endometriosis center at Chelsea have actually been discussed at our cancer meetings first. So they have a cyst that looks a little bit suspicious and they've done a blood test and found the CA125 to be elevated. But actually, when they look at the pictures more carefully, or maybe do a pelvic MRI to try and get to the bottom of things, and getting a history from the, uh, the, the woman about her um, pains and, uh, and how she's experienced things, actually, the chance of cancer is, is much, much lower. Okay. Well, that's good to know, that there's no direct... Um, the Having endometriosis does not necessarily predispose you um, highly to cancer. So. Exactly right. So different studies have said different things, um, but but broadly speaking, I think that's correct. Okay. Another thing I had in mind was in relation to the names of contributors to the theories and research done about endometriosis, which we talked about last episode. So we talked about Thomas Cullen, Rakitansky, and even John Sampson, who was responsible for the theory of retrograde menstruation. But one of the names we didn't mention was David Redwine. He has been credited with the theory of malariosis as being a cause for endo. And we both, you talked about it as um, having endometriosis being found in embryos. So I just wanted to know if there's any information by Redwine that you want to share so listeners know a bit more about why his work was so relevant to endometriosis. I've been hearing, yeah. yeah, a lot has been said about him. I've heard about him in, you know, Nancy's Nuke uh, Facebook group and a few other um, people in the community of endometriosis. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So he was an American doctor and um, his theory stems from the fact that, you know, the retrograde menstruation just has lots and lots of holes in it. I mean, we all know that we see retrograde menstruation in the majority of women and we don't see endometriosis there. We also see endometriosis in the absence of retrograde menstruation. We might even, you know, if you scour through the scientific literature, you'll find evidence of endometriosis in men, for goodness sake, or women without uteruses. There are some genetic conditions where women sadly are born without having a womb. Um, and they, of course, don't have retrograde menstruation because they're not having periods. So there's got to be something else going on, right? Yeah. Um, the, this links back in to talking about all those different sites of endometriosis potentially being different diseases and most of what uh, red wine is talking about is deep infiltrating endometriosis so we're not necessarily talking about the superficial endometriotic deposits we're talking about the deep um, deposits that are invasive into the areas around them classically found on the uterosacral ligaments the pelvic sidewall and the rectovaginal septum 
So malariosis um, describes the deposition of this endometriotic cell types and tissue along the areas where the reproductive tract forms in a woman. Um, it happens in both women and men, actually, that the gonads, so that's the testicles or the ovaries, start off when we're a tiny little fetus in the first few weeks and months of our, our development in the womb. They start off by our kidneys, which are sort of just at the bottom of your rib cage around the back. So if you feel the bottom of your ribs just a little bit lower, both sides at the back, that's where your kidneys live. And over a period of time, the gonads move down that tract and they leave little deposits behind in certain groups of people. Some people have cysts all along these tracts. And it could be that in those areas, we see tissue types that would normally be found in the lining of the womb. So that's the sort of the fundamental basis of it. And it fits quite nicely with the sites that we see endometriosis. They work their way down, down the pelvic sidewall, down the uterosacral ligaments and into the rectovaginal septum. And then the ovaries you know, form there and then the womb forms there in the middle. Um, we talked about, and Redwine references this quite heavily, the fact that endometriosis can be found in both fetuses and newborn babies. These are sadly newborn babies who are usually born stillborn and they've undergone post-mortem examination which has allowed doctors to be able to find evidence of these cell types. So um, we've learned a little bit more about it, despite the, the, the sad circumstances. Um, different theories exist. So one is that these are deposited there in the process of the genital tract forming and the cells moving down. It is also, and I think we talked about it briefly last week as well, that there may yet be some retrograde menstruation in those fetuses associated with the maternal, so the mother's progesterone levels, which are very, very high during pregnancy. That causes a reaction in the cell type that's lining the womb, which is a similar reaction to what women get in the second half of the menstrual cycle, which is a preparation for a potential pregnancy, um, if you can see during that. Uh, after that ovulation. Um, and there could theoretically, again, it's all theoretical, we don't know 100%, be some retrograde, retrograde menstruation happening at that stage, which kind of primes these cells. Um, and different, or cells in different places are exposed to different environmental conditions. So an endometrial gland cell in the endometrium is quite happy there, and it's gonna do its normal thing, and it's gonna grow in the first half of the menstrual cycle and stabilize and secrete in the second and shed during a period. But actually, an endometrial cell, which has found its way somewhere else or was deposited somewhere else, is under a very different environment. And in that environment, its genetics are going to fundamentally change. Not the primary building blocks. The DNA is going to stay the same. But how it's expressed is changed due to the, the level of, of inflammatory markers around it, whether genes are switched on and off due to different processes. There's a process called methylation, which is a chemical change in the DNA. There's a process called glycosylation, which is adding various chemical groups. Um, and all of that plays its part to say, actually, you know what, I'm not going to be a normal endometrial cell. I'm going to invade into this peritoneum. I'm going to get my friends to join me. And then the body says, right, I'm going to try and fight this off. And I'm going to send um, inflammatory cells here. And I'm going to create new blood vessels and deposit scar tissue in this area. And that process happens over a period of time. And then lo and behold, we get deep infiltrating endometriotic nodules, which the more we, we, we look for, the more we're seeing. And we're seeing in women younger and younger and younger. Um, and, you know, I said that earlier on, most women, when we find deep infiltrating endometriosis, it actually doesn't change over time. We find it at a certain level and it stays like that and until we, we do surgery on it, if that's what the woman wishes for. Um, and actually, we could find this earlier. We could find this during adolescence when it's first developing or potentially develop some kind of treatment for it, whether it's hormonal, whether it's immunomodulatory, you know, using medications to try and stop the body's reaction to it. 
um, or whether it's surgical, there might be new treatment strategies. So it's very useful to think about the way endometriosis can establish and different theories on it, because it's all potentially going to help guide future therapies. So another thing that Redwine said, you know, he was talking about the malarian tract being the areas that endometriosis can potentially deposit in its way down during the embryonic phase and, and fetal development. And he was a proponent of surgical excision, radical surgical excision of all of this malarian tract. And actually then we can either prevent endo or, or cure it. Um, you're not going to develop the deep infiltrating disease if you haven't got the tracts where it develops, or if we remove all areas that endometriosis can potentially develop or you know is already there but we haven't seen it yet then we've got a much lower risk of of quotes unquotes recurrence it might be it was always there it's not a recurrence we just didn't see it the first time around um of course the downside of that is as women listening to this will know who have had surgery you feel worse before you feel better and the more extensive the surgery potentially the longer the recovery and the more the downsides most of what we try and avoid doing in surgery is damaging areas around where we're operating. And you know, there are quite key parts uh, in the malarian tract, most significantly the, the, the urinary system, the ureter, major blood vessels, important nerves as well. Um, and the collateral damage of doing that and doing very extensive radical surgery could potentially um, put women at risk and, and make things, I wouldn't want to say worse off, because it all depends on what the symptoms were to start with. But anyone considering that sort of operation has to carefully balance up together with the surgeon, together with all the information, the, the risks and benefits. Um, and it might be that actually medical treatments, hormonal treatments or less extensive surgery are preferable, um, accepting that you might not have total excision of disease. There are some proponents saying, actually, no, go for total excision. Let's treat it like a cancer. Let's chop out everything we can see and then we're going to cure it. Um, and as surgical techniques get better and better over time, then that's going to become more and more possible. You know, in the old days before laparoscopy, by far and away, the biggest thing to recover from surgery was a great big scar in your tummy. And to do extensive surgery like that, we're talking about, you know, 10, 15 centimeter scars on the tummy, which require a lot of surgery. Laparoscopy is now moving on to the, the dawn of robotic surgery, um, which is becoming more and more prevalent in gynecology. And, and it enables us, us to operate on finer things with much finer tolerances i suspect in 50 years time i probably won't be working in 50 years time but you know <laughs> i'll look back in my retirement at what i was doing as a surgeon today and what we're doing in the department today and think god we were we were brutal look at the look at what we were doing analogous to field surgeons you know doing amputations without anesthesia yeah. in uh, the wars you know i'm exaggerating of course but um there will undoubtedly be, be progressions which might enable us to do things like that yeah let's hope that that happens sooner than later <laughs> yeah but then again you know it might be that over time we develop gene therapies and novel immuno treatments and and the the, the days of the surgeon are over yeah. and i'll be uh retiring early because there'll be no one to operate on anymore because we've cured everyone with an injection at birth <laughs> you know who knows i think the first thing we need to sort out is a way to diagnose with to diagnose it without surgery because right now, I guess, yeah, the gold standard of diagnosis is basically like a laparoscopic surgery. So if we can get like a diagnostic marker or test or something that, you know, without going into the patient, yeah. you can already tell that the person has endometriosis. I think it would be 100%. Yeah, and it would yeah, help absolutely. to 
Yeah, and it will help to reduce those um, diagnosis times seven years to 10 years. So. Quite right. You know, we talked about finding it early, finding it in adolescence, finding it before it's become a big issue, because it might be women don't get diagnosed until, you know, we know sadly in their late 20s, 30s, or that it's when they're trying for a baby that things are found, when actually the opportunity for treatment and preventing years of all this pain and, uh, and, and intolerable symptoms could have been when they were 13, 14. Um, at the moment, I, as a surgeon, I'd be quite reticent to, to operate on someone at 13, 14 and, and going later into adolescence. You know, there are risks of surgery um, and it's not something you should go into um, without accepting all the pros and cons. And you know, it, it could be the beginning of a tough road if you're having your first laparoscopy in your teens. Um, so that is a big stumbling block. I think that plays a huge part in the delay of, of presentation to diagnosis. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about stages of endometriosis. So many of us in the community are aware of the American staging system, but we also know that the stage of endometriosis using that system of staging doesn't necessarily correlate with the pain or the other symptoms that you experience. Another uh, shortcoming or shortfall of this is that it says nothing about extra pelvic endometriosis, which we will talk about in a bit. So can you discuss the stages and how they can be recognized or how the you can understand what they are. Yeah, so um, the um, American Society of Reproductive Medicine criteria talk about four stages of endometriosis, minimal, mild, moderate, and severe. And it's basically a cumulative scoring system based on what you see at laparoscopy. So it's not something that you can definitively describe before the laparoscopy, whether it's you know MRI or ultrasound, but you can make a very good judgment. Um, you get different points based on where it is and how deep it is and the level of scar tissue around the areas of concern. Um, it was developed in the 80s and it's, it's quite well understood. And I think the key advantage of the, um, the ASRM um, is that doctors understand it, patients understand it, and it, it sort of makes sense in an anatomical way. So people can look at diagrams and think, you know, that kind of fits with what I'm getting. This is where my adhesions are. Um, I won't go into sort of full detail describing how the scoring works and what it adds up, but I would suggest if you Google it, um, you'll find lots and lots of diagrams that you can look at um, and correlate that with your own experience and ultrasound reports and reports of laparoscopies. There are, however, downsides. Um, you're absolutely right to say it doesn't correlate particularly well with the symptoms people experience. Um, and that's true of all endometriosis. You know, I, I think I talked about it last time that we sometimes do laparoscopies for other reasons entirely. We're investigating, we're doing a, you know, an appendicectomy or a, an ovarian cyst that isn't an endometriotic cyst um, or sterilizing someone, clipping fallopian tubes so she won't get pregnant without taking hormones. Um, and we see endometriosis and we say, well, did you have pain? Did you have any symptoms? And we said, actually, no, I had no idea. I mean, I'm glad I know now, but you know, that hadn't been something that was affecting my life. Sometimes we see it and they say, God, yeah, I had really heavy, painful periods my whole life and it was never looked at. Um, but it doesn't correlate that well with symptoms. And occasionally, and there's a few women I can think of who I've seen recently in clinic have got I would say surprisingly severe disease. We see that they've got deep infiltrating disease, um, stage four on the SRM, um, rectovaginal nodules even, and their symptoms aren't that significant. It's rare we see them with no symptoms at all, to be honest. Um, but it's the sort of thing we might find um, when going through subfertility investigations. Um, 
so there are pros and cons. It, it sort of makes sense. It makes sense anatomically, but it doesn't match that well with symptoms people get, nor does it match that well with um, fertility prospects necessarily. There are a couple of other scoring systems that, um, that we use, and they're used variably by doctors and patients. There's one called the Enzian um, criteria, which you're right, does include endometriosis found outside the pelvis. Um, it's a little bit more complex in terms of it's just talking about deep infiltrating disease, but it talks about deep infiltrating disease either being in front of the womb, behind the womb, or the pelvic sidewall. And then it's in reference to how big the lesion is. So it helps guide surgeons in terms of what sorts of excisions might be needed, how to approach it. And then it has different criteria um, for endometriosis found on the diaphragm, um, adenomyosis, um, so sort of endometriosis in the womb itself and which can cause some plaques outside the womb and then extra pelvic outside the the abdomen either in the in the lungs in the thorax on the kidneys on the liver all those kind of things as well other scoring systems exist mostly i think the thing people would have heard of would be the endometriosis fertility index yeah. Um, which is useful when people are, are going through fertility assessment or even when they're not um, to give a judgment as to how likely people are on an individual basis to be able to fall pregnant without needing assisted reproductive technology. So IVF, essentially. Um, it looks at different criteria. So half of it looks at the patient history. It doesn't talk about the endometriosis at all. We know that one of the most important um, factors in subfertility is, is age. So it gives you a score based on your age. It gives you a score on whether you've previously been pregnant. And it gives you a score based on the duration of how long you've been trying to fall pregnant for. Um, knowing that the longer you've been trying to fall pregnant for unsuccessfully, sadly, you get a bit of a law of diminishing returns. And the less likely you are, therefore, to be able to fall pregnant spontaneously afterwards. And then the second half looks at the endometriosis. And it looks at different areas, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the adnexum, which is what we call that whole area around the pelvis mostly how functional they are in terms of scar tissue, whether the ovarian, uh, whether, I beg your pardon, the, the fallopian tubes are, are free and open to allow the passage of embryo and um, sperm and egg down to, to conceive effectively. Okay. Why don't you take a break, grab a snack, or go get hydrated, and we will be back in 15 seconds. Okay, so let's talk about how you specifically diagnose endometriosis. So officially, and, and this is what you'll find in the textbooks and things, you, you referenced it already, what we call the gold standard diagnostic model is uh, doing a laparoscopy and visually inspecting the pelvis and seeing endometriosis. Um, that is still the headline, but I think it goes a little bit further than that. We're going to get onto it in a second when we talk about the different colours and how endometriosis looks. But we know that we don't always get it right, and, and all gynaecologists don't get it right all the time. Um, and even probably the best, most skilled, most experienced gynaecologists don't get it right all the time on visually inspecting endometriosis. So we'll add a bit to that and say actually doing a biopsy and confirming it in the laboratory. So looking at, uh, looking at it under the microscope and saying we've got this characteristic endometrial glands and stroma. Where was the biopsy taken? It wasn't from the uterus itself. We've got endometriosis. Um, so that is, is, is the, the, the true gold standard, the real way of saying, have we got it? Have we not got it? Of course, the only way to 
fundamentally say 100% is to biopsy everything. Um, and actually, you're not necessarily going to be biopsying things that look normal, but it might be that quotes unquotes looks normal, could well be there's some endometriosis there. So it's reasonable to biopsy anything that looks even remotely suspicious. So even if the surgeon says, I don't think this is endo, it could be inflammatory, it could be scar tissue from something else, let's still do a biopsy. And actually, you'd be surprised how much of that comes back saying it is endometriosis after all. Um, but that isn't really how we diagnose it day to day necessarily. That's how we get the final nail in the coffin. We've got this diagnosis, you have got endometriosis, but we can be highly suspicious right from the beginning. So it goes to taking a full history from the, um, the, 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 the woman suffering from the symptoms, you know, does she experience painful periods? Is the pain actually not, not exclusively cyclical? Is it happening throughout the, the menstrual cycle? Has it been a chronic pelvic pain of some duration? Does she experience pain during intercourse? Um, if she does, is that a superficial pain? Is that a deep pain? Does it depend on, on certain positioning that might be causing aggravation of certain structures in the pelvis? Um, and one of the features of deep infiltrating endometriosis, particularly that in the rectovaginal septum, is this thing called dyskesia. So that's significant pain when going to the laboratory, when opening your bowels, um, and also an urgency when you need to go for a poo, you need to go quickly. All of those features put together to say, well, actually, you know, if you've got all four of those, come on, we're, we're going down that road of thinking endometriosis, we'd be surprised if it wasn't. So then you might go a little bit further and say, well, do you have a family history of endometriosis? We know that it exists more commonly in women who have a first degree relative, so mothers, sisters with endo, um, and to a lesser extent, second degree relatives. So those are important questions to ask. Going back to theories of how it started, that retrograde menstruation theory is still quite prominent and you know, still undoubtedly has a part to play. So women who had earlier start of periods or shorter menstrual cycles, so essentially they've had more periods in their life, are shown to have a high risk of endometriosis as well. Um, again, there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing perhaps there, but it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, and then looking at, at, at characteristics we know there's an inverse relationship with BMI, for example. So it's more likely in women with a, an underweight or healthy BMI than they are in, in the overweight category. Those are all questions. You then go on to doing some examination. Um, you might find there's tenderness on, on palpating the pelvis. And women listening have probably experienced either speculum examinations or what we call a bimanual examination, which is a, a digital assessment of the pelvic organs. And there would be characteristic in some women thickening and tenderness along the uterosacral ligaments. So just behind the cervix, there might be a lot of pain and tenderness when moving the womb. There might be a great big nodule that you can feel that's tender. It might be that the womb doesn't move at all because it's so stuck down with all these adhesions or you can feel a large ovarian cyst on pelvic examination. So that would lead you to suspect, well, you know, putting all this together, all these symptoms, the history, the way the patient looks, the family history, and what I've seen on examination, I'd be even more surprised if this wasn't endometriosis. Of course, there are other things to consider, and you've got scar tissue because of previous infection. You've got lots and lots of different flavors of ovarian cyst, most of which entirely benign, reassuringly, that can all cause similar symptoms. And sometimes we simply don't have an explanation of this symptom, so it's not cut and dry at this stage. The next step would be doing some investigations. First line we talked about doing a pelvic ultrasound scan. If you've seen what looks like an endometrioma, which has quite a classic appearance on, a, on an ultrasound, um, that's the chocolate cyst within the ovary. The likelihood of having endometriosis at that stage is, is pretty high indeed. Ultrasounds nowadays are better than they have ever been, and I'm sure they'll get better over years and decades to come, but the sensitivity and what we call the specificity, so saying what it is, is it really is, 
for endometriomas is, is pretty high now on ultrasound. They might also see features suggestive of the deep disease, either a nodule or evidence of scar tissue, which again raises your suspicion. The CA125 blood test isn't 100% a prerequisite for diagnosing endometriosis. So, you know, I wouldn't worry if you're a patient going through investigative process and you haven't had that blood test. If the CA125 is mildly elevated or, you know, a little bit higher than normal, that again is suggestive of endometriosis, but a normal CA125 doesn't entirely rule it out. Um, a very, very high CA125 could be suggestive of something else going on, but it could be endometriosis as well. So it's a reasonable one to have. The next step really is done when you've already been referred to the hospital and you've come to either a district hospital, or potentially endometriosis centre like we are in Chelsea, um, where really we're operating on deep infiltrating endometriosis, that um, SRM stage three and four particularly. Um, an MRI is useful in telling us a bit more about what the relationship is perhaps of these nodules with the bowel um, and the pelvic sidewall, the ureters. And, and that's often the emphasis of our discussion then is, yes, we've got the option of removing it surgically, but what is the potential risk involved with that? Do we need to involve other groups of surgeons like the urologists or the colorectal surgeons or our most common collaborators um, to do some operating on the bowel? Do you need to have a shave the endometriosis off the bowel or are we looking at actually resecting an area of bowel or much less likely, but necessary under some circumstances, resecting bowel and, and, and giving a colostomy bag, what we call a stoma, to allow the bowel to heal before putting things back together again to normal. So all those things are considered. But you're right, the diagnosis, headline diagnosis is laparoscopy, biopsy, confirmation under a microscope. But actually all of that process leading up to that, you're highly suspicious under some circumstances. Most of those symptoms are going to be there in someone with severe endometriosis um, when you put everything together. But actually in superficial peritoneal deposits, it might not be. We know it doesn't show up on ultrasound scan. You might not have all those symptoms together. And the CA125 is unlikely to be changed in MRI, usually doesn't show anything. So in that sense, you need to do all of the previous ones and then finally get to a laparoscopy to get the diagnosis, yes or no. But in the more severe cases, you probably can know about it beforehand. Okay. So, um, so basically all the, I love the holistic, if that's the right word to use, um, approach you use that you have, you take the history, you do all of that before then going into laparoscopy. And I think absolutely. That's yeah. I think the history is, is incredibly important, not just to elicit the symptoms, but actually to elicit what's going on in the patient's life, you know, and how does she view the symptoms and what are her priorities for things? Is the priority the pain? Is the priority getting a diagnosis? Is the priority fertility? Um, you know, what else has she got going on? Has she had previous surgery for other things which changed the risk involved with this? Has she got a family member, you know, under severe stress and strain? Is she suffering from mental health problems? So the history isn't just specific to the endometriosis, but actually we can learn a lot about it from there. Okay. So talking about peritoneal endometriosis, I once read in a study that physicians were asked to identify endometriosis and quite a significant number of them missed endometriosis. And this is because endometriosis can appear in various colors. So we can have black lesions, white, other lesions, and so on. So let's talk about the different appearances and colors of endometriosis. Yeah, you know, I think the first episode you, you mentioned endometriosis was an enigma. And it's an enigma even to, to gynecologists who devote their professional life to it. So you're absolutely right. It looks different. The classic appearance is the what we call the powder burn, um, black or, or bluish hue deposits 
on the peritoneum. And I'd suggest anyone to, to, to put that into Google and you'll see lots and lots of pictures from laparoscopies demonstrating these, these little spots. They're not often huge. They're, you know, up to a centimeter, sometimes across, occasionally bigger, usually come in patches of, you know, four, five, six, multiple little deposits. Um, it can, however, look quite different. And I think these are the ones that, that trick people. These are the ones that trick even experienced uh, surgeons who are very used to looking at and treating endometriosis. But you talk about the red or, or, or clear cystic looking endometriosis, um, which could be confused for bleeding areas of blood vessel, new blood vessels forming, areas of previous infection or, or small little adhesions perhaps. Um, which again, are seen, they talk about 30% of, of endometriosis having that appearance um, in some studies they've looked at. The other one is the white endometriosis, which probably is scar tissue that's formed as a result of, of previous inflammation going on in the area. Um, the, 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 the body's sent all these inflammatory mediators to the site and the cell type around it has changed and the peritoneum has become thickened and fibrosed, which gives it a whitish appearance, but there could well still be active endometriosis in it. Um, and that's seen probably in about 20% of endometriosis, you know, looking at one study, which was quoting on thousands of, of surgical cases. The red ones and the white ones are the ones that trick people. And um, it's the ones that your surgeons get wrong. And if you, you can look at it and say, oh, is it endometriosis? Is it not endometriosis? Not quite sure. The answer is biopsy. If you're going to say, remove it anyway, it might not be. Um, but equally, it could be. There was a, a, a large study um, which found that 10% of lesions removed at surgery that the surgeon didn't think was endometriosis was endometriosis. Wow. So there's, there's a possibility there. Um, it also found that in lesions that the surgeon thought was endometriosis, around about 30% turned out not to be. So, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. We talk about it in terms of a positive predictive value and a negative predictive value. If the surgeon says this is endometriosis, what are the chances of it being positive? And this study, one study I appreciate, but it was looking at quite a reasonable cohort, found that 64% were positive that were thought to be. And the negative was 88. So if it didn't look like endo, the surgeon said it wasn't, then it probably wasn't, or it wasn't in 88% of cases. Interestingly, this study was only looking at women that they saw lesions in the pelvis that they thought were endometriosis to a degree to start with. So they thought endometriosis was somewhere, and it was another lesion that they looked at that turned out not to be, they didn't think it was. So this study was not including women where they didn't see anything. So if you did a laparoscopy and you didn't see anything, it all looked totally normal. There wasn't even a your red area, a white area, a, you know, um, a sky blue pink area, then you probably haven't got the endo um, because, you know, there was nothing even remotely suspicious there to biopsy. The answer is gynecologists should be biopsying absolutely everything. I think they do, you know, universally. We want to know, and I've been surprised in the past about what comes back as being endometriosis or what comes back as not being endometriosis. Um, the confusing areas sometimes happen in women who've had previous surgeries. So they've had either excision or sometimes ablation of endometriosis. And, and then you see a scarred area. You sometimes see a little bit of charcoal area, which, which looks like a little um, black deposit as well. It might not be active disease. It might be where it was previously excised. It could be new disease growing into an area of previous excision. So there's a few question marks over it. Um, but the answer is if it looks a bit suspicious, you should probably be removing it, biopsying it. Testing it. Okay.
So there's a hashtag in the endometriosis space and community online known as hashtag extra pelvic not rare. Many on social media use this hashtag to try to highlight the existence of endometriosis outside of the pelvis. So let's talk about locations and sites of endometriosis. Research has shown that endo has occurred in all organs of the body apart from the spleen. So can we talk about where, first of all, in literature, where has endometriosis been found that people should be aware of? And also in your experience, where have you, what is the strangest organ or place that you found endometriosis? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, we, we see it outside the pelvis, not infrequently, you know, it is most commonly in the pelvis. So it is, you know, true to say that it's, it's rarer outside the pelvis, but you know, not rare. If we look on a global outlook, how many women are going to have extra pelvic endometriosis? We're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions potentially. So, you know, it's not rare in that sense. Um, you say it hasn't been found in the spleen. I, I must admit, I've not read any literature saying it was found in the spleen, but I'm sure if you looked at enough spleens, you might find it somewhere. So who knows? Um, it, it, I think we talked about this in the first episode, didn't we, about the other theory of endo. We talked about the, um, um, the, the malariosis. We talked about retrograde menstruation. The other one is that it's either a cell elsewhere in the body just fundamentally deciding one day it doesn't like being a bit of diaphragm or a bit of lung, it's going to become endometriosis, or it's endometriosis spreading through the blood system or through the lymphatic system and depositing elsewhere. So it's starting off in the womb or in the pelvis and then it's appearing elsewhere. Um, we don't know the answer fundamentally. The fact that it's been seen in men suggests that there is an element of what, I, what we call metaplasia, um, so changing of a, of, a, of a cell from one cell type to another. Um, we see it most commonly in the diaphragm when it's not in the pelvis. You can look at that on laparoscopy. That's probably why it's the most common one we see because we're there and we're looking for it. Um, if we did thoracoscopies and looked down in people's lungs and bronchi in every patient we did an, endome an endometriosis laparoscopy on, we might see it there as well. Um, but we don't because that involves significant risk and you know, people really wouldn't thank us for the, um, the side effects. So the diaphragm it's seen in the lungs we see it. Um, there is a phenomenon called catamenial pneumothorax um, which is endometriosis involving the lung tissue such that during menstruation when the endometriotic cells are inflamed and angry and causing bleeding you might find the lung collapses. So that's a pneumothorax and, and air fills the space where the lung was or something called a hemothorax where blood fills the space the lung was and you know, that can be really quite dangerous. That's something we were talking about um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we did a webinar with CCMIG and talked all about the risks associated with endometriosis and COVID-19 and vice versa. Um, mostly we were able to reassure women actually that those suffering from endo were in a relatively low risk group um, in that they were young and female and normally not otherwise unwell with chronic medical conditions, although not exclusively. But in those women who did have endometriosis in the lungs, in those women who did experience collapsed lungs during periods or at risk of that, then potentially COVID is something that, that they should be addressing more carefully. Um, it's difficult to say what the true prevalence is because you know, we, we, we don't look for it in everyone. We simply can't look for it in everyone without putting people at, at some increased risk. Um, it's also true that some women get symptoms associated with endometriosis that might not be due to it. So shortness of breath perhaps, or aches and pains in the chest, it could well be that there is an element of extra pelvic endometriosis. It could be associated with other hormonal changes going on. Um, so we don't know 100%, but the lungs is, is probably a, a site that we all need to be aware of. 
um, particularly as, as being common. In my experience, um, uh, beyond the diaphragm and, and the lungs, we do see it in the tummy button reasonably often. Um, sometimes it's after surgery. So we might see someone who's had laparoscopy surgery or they've had a laparotomy. So that's a bigger scar on the tummy that's involved the, the tummy button and they have a, an endometriotic lesion there. Sometimes they're under the skin and you can just feel a nodule or a lump. Often it gets more painful, it gets bigger during menstruation. Sometimes they're superficial such that people actually have bleeding through the tummy button. So every time you have your period, you're bleeding through the tummy button, which you, know, you can imagine how frustrating and, and difficult those sorts of symptoms are. Um, in women who've had children delivered by cesarean section, we do see endometriosis in the cesarean scar occasionally. And this is sometimes seen in women who don't have any evidence of previous endometriosis. So it might be in the process of opening the womb, which you have to do to meet the baby. You're making a, an incision through the uterus, all the way through the muscle layers of the womb and through the endometrial layer, the deciduous layer in that case. Um, and the, the cells get out and they can deposit in the scar and potentially um, cause endometriosis there. Um, again, it is more commonly perhaps seen in women who have pelvic endometriosis otherwise. Um, there's a patient I'm thinking of who we were looking after quite recently who's got endometriosis potentially in the site of a previous hernia repair. So a hernia in the groin that was repaired um, and that gets more painful, more swollen during the menstrual cycle. Um, and there's endometriosis there. There was a very interesting case um, some months ago that actually was being operated on at a hospital in Chelsea, one of the private hospitals that we've been operating on during the pandemic called the Lister Hospital. Um, but she was a patient from down in Surrey, looked after by Mr. Kazali, who had endometriosis involving the nerves supplying her buttocks and her leg, um, such that the MRI pictures that we looked at, all the muscles on that side had shrunk away and wasted, just like someone would have if they'd had you know, a, a spinal cord injury or a stroke or something like that because the endometriosis had affected the nerves and, and, and the muscles in that way. And that involved surgical excision. So that was a, not necessarily a, it was related to pelvic deep infiltrating endometriosis, but it got so far, it got beyond the normal pelvic structures we talk about being involved. Um, it's been found in the brain. It's been found all sorts of places. Sorry to tell you. I was going to say, could she walk? She was finding it increasingly difficult. I, I must admit, I didn't meet the patient myself. I was around in the hospital at the time she was having a surgery, but um, I don't know how severe her symptoms got such that she might not have been able to walk. But I know that that was uh, a significant symptom. Her legs were getting weaker. The muscles were getting wasted. I think her mobility was getting harder and harder. Um, it was recently reported in the press. I think the Independent talked about it. So it would be there on Google if anyone wants to look it up. And you said it, was, it has also been found in the brain. It has been, yeah. You know, the, these sites are probably much rarer. So although extra pelvic endometriosis might not be as rare as we think, these sort of extraordinary sites are indeed rare. And I would say that neurological involvement, so the brain or large nerves in the body, is a very rare phenomenon, but not zero. Um, they would probably present with um, neurological symptoms, headaches, weaknesses, tingling in limbs, those sorts of things. And of course, if those sorts of things happen, it is perhaps far more likely it's another diagnosis. But in a woman who's known to have endometriosis, in a woman who's known to have endometriosis that affects non-pelvic sites, it would be on the list of differentials when, uh, when she was being, being looked after. So final question, and this is about another rare manifestation of endometriosis. It's something I've been wanting to talk about because I have personally experienced this rarity and I'm keen to make sure that people are aware that it exists. And this is ascites, so hemorrhagic ascites due to endometriosis. 
it's been said that it's rare, but what's pretty interesting is I was on a webinar hosted by an endometriosis that endometriosis advocate in Nigeria and she had some doctors on the panel both from the UK and also from Nigeria so I asked the question about ascites and I wanted to know how many of the cases they had actually come across so the doctors in the UK said it was indeed rare and the I think one of them had not even come across it at all but the Nigerian doctor said that he he's also an excision specialist and he said he has seen quite a few cases so the more i talk about it with people i think it would help to raise awareness and we'll begin to see the condition in the literature so let's talk about ascites what it is why it happens if we know because we endometriosis we never know and if there's any uh thing in terms of race or you know, that, that predisposes people to having ascites with endometriosis, because mm. I'm not sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So ascites, first of all, describes fluid in the abdomen, in the intraperitoneal cavity. So that's the area that contains your large bowel, your small bowel, your stomach, spleen and liver, all your pelvic organs are all intraperitoneal. The kidneys, interestingly, are retroperitoneal. So they're just behind and the retroperitoneum is where the deep infiltrating endometriosis invades into. So lots of fluid inside the tummy, basically, is ascites. It can happen to either to lesser or greater degrees. Um, a small amount of fluid is very common, actually. Um, it usually happens classically in the middle of, of a menstrual cycle. We do a laparoscopy, and there might be 50, 100 mils of fluid in the pelvis. Sometimes it's a little bit bloody, and that can be due to the follicle that released the egg, sometimes having a little bit of bleeding from it or it could be an element of retrograde menstruation, depending on whereabouts in the cycle we are. So that, in a sense, is normal. What isn't normal is large volumes of it. And we know that ascites can get into the many litres. And I think you and I, Tenny, were talking about your recent ascites. And you, was it five litres? Five um, litres. And this drained time, on. I had five litres drained. So. Which is a huge amount. And, and you, you would have undoubtedly felt you know, really symptomatic with that bloating and, and, and swelling of the tummy. And it definitely wouldn't have looked normal at all. And um, this might be uh, uh, to a lesser degree than five liters go somewhere and explain the sort of endo belly appearance that people get perhaps, you know, that swelling characteristic. Some of it might be hormonal in terms of the bowel slowing down and more gas building up. So there's, there's different potentials, but it, but it, it perhaps plays its part. But this Severe ascites, which is you know large volume, lots and lots of fluid, classically with blood all mixed in, the endometriotic fluid, as a manifestation of endometriosis is rare. Absolutely. It's something that I've not personally experienced. I, 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 I'm at the beginning of my career as an endometriosis doctor, um, so you perhaps might not have expected me to experience the rarer things, but you could quite happily, as you said, speak to doctors who've been doing it for 40 years, at least in UK practice in Western Europe, who wouldn't have seen it either. Um, the literature, in fact, and I looked up just before we had this conversation, there are 64 cases reported in the, 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 the medical literature of um, severe ascites attributable to endometriosis. Of course, there would have been far more. That's the very tip of the iceberg of cases that are either extraordinary or interesting or worthy of writing up or had doctors with the wherewithal and interest to write it up. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily represent things, but it tells us it doesn't happen all the time. By far and away, the biggest risk factor noted in that, that case series um, was being of, of Afro-Caribbean origin. Um, so it probably isn't a huge surprise that the doctors who work in Nigerian practice saw it more commonly. I suspect it's still rare for them, but it's something they would have all experienced throughout their careers, whereas in the UK it might not have been, and it's still certainly worthy in the UK of writing up in the medical literature so people like me and patients like you can read about it and, and learn about it. 
it's often pretty scary when it happens um, because number one, it's very debilitating, very painful, huge amounts of discomfort. Um, number two, ascites can be associated with other things and, and things that um, can be, you know, including cancers of the ovary. Um, if you were to find an endometrioma, a complex looking ovarian cyst, you were to find large amounts of fluid in the abdomen and pelvis, so ascites, and you were to do a CA125 blood test, which undoubtedly in the context of large amounts of endometriosis ascites would be raised, your first thing to rule out would be cancer of the ovary. And that's got to be incredibly scary for something, someone going through that. Um, so these are women who usually would present through our cancer meetings and then come to us in endometriosis as a second port of call, unless we know that they've had endometriosis for some time. We know that this is a manifestation, sadly, of their condition. Um, so yeah, it's rare. It's, it's very symptomatic. It can be extremely debilitating. It is much more common in women of Afro-Caribbean origin. Um, in the case series that we were looking at, I think it was 70% or so um, were black, but it might be due to the you know, resource limitations and, uh, uh, and limitations on medical expertise in sub-Saharan Africa particularly. It's probably overrepresented in terms of the, the white population. So it's probably more affecting Afro-Caribbean people even than the literature suggests due to a what we call a publication bias so that happens to you in you know wealthy um, UK it's more likely to be reported and written on in the medical literature than it happens somewhere much more rural and, and developed and undeveloped I beg your pardon. Yeah I agree I, I agree with that so thank you very much for those answers it's been a great episode again and I'm looking forward to next episode where we'll be talking about the different treatments of endometriosis so talking about hormonal surgical and even holistic therapies so i'm looking forward to that for next episode excellent yeah no don't mention it it's huge amounts to talk about as i said and every answer we can go into to far more detail and uh, go down different tangents and avenues um because it is a real enigma there's huge amounts we don't understand it's a hugely complex issue and it's you know hugely debilitating but i think the more that we talk about it the more that women know about um the the possible symptoms and they know about the possibilities of investigation and treatment the better okay amazing thank you so much tom see you next week <laughs> don't mention it see you next week tenny okay i hope you've learned a lot from this episode today be sure to come back next week for episode three where we talk about the different treatments for endometriosis if you enjoyed this episode i would love to know join me on instagram and facebook and also follow the Instagram page of Chelsea Center for Minimal Invasive Gynecology at ccmig.london, where Tom shares a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. Don't forget to share, rate, and subscribe to this episode. Till next time, remember, you are not defined by endo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next time.